Please turn with me now to John chapter 17. And we began last week with the first part of what is known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus <coughs> intercedes first for himself, he prays for himself. Um, the section that we're going to look at today is when Jesus prays for his disciples, and then we'll have one more section remaining where Jesus prays for all believers, those who will believe all down through history. So let's begin, uh, we'll just read the first 19 verses today, I want to read the first five as review and then read the section that we'll be covering today. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept my word. Now they know that everything that you have, that you have given me, is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All, are my, all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has, world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their, their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. As I mentioned, this is part of what is known as the high priestly prayer. And we consider it a high priestly prayer because of Jesus' attitude in this passage that we read. He consecrates himself, he sets himself apart, he purifies himself for the role of um, taking on the, uh, of advocating, of coming into the Father's presence. First for himself, then for his disciples, and then for all who would believe. The Old Testament high priest, an office that is no longer uh, of any value, the Old Testament high priest 
would do the same thing. He would first intercede for himself and prepare himself to go into that holy place. He would also intercede for his family or his household, those close to him, and then he would intercede for all of Israel. So what we have here is Jesus um, anticipating the role that he has now, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and where he makes intercession for his people, where his blood makes intercession, that sacrifice made once of the just for the unjust, of the blood of the, the perfect Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot, slain for us filthy creatures who are nothing but blemish and spot. Um, now, the high priest in the Old Testament... Once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would take blood into that holy place, the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant, the top which is called the Mercy Seat. And that was uh, blood that was shed by an animal that, the peop that Aaron had identified with on behalf of the people. And the blood was then brought in and sprinkled there um, as a sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus has gone into the holy place. He has gone into the very presence of God, not with the boat blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And there obtained eternal redemption for us. This is his high priestly role. He is not only the high priest, he is also the sacrifice. The Old Testament priest would take all kinds of precautions so that he would not die when he came into the presence of God. He would do everything the Lord commanded. Jesus, though he was holy and righteous, he went into the presence of God. And he went into that holy place, shedding his own blood. He went in to die. He went to die for us, so that we would never have to have the threat of death, of separation from God, spiritual and physical torment forever and ever. Jesus um, saw to it that anyone who believes in him is immune from those things. Um, so we saw Jesus identifying himself as, or praying for himself last week, and he was basically um, showing that he had completed everything the Father had required him to do, he was prepared to enter into this role of intercession. And his request then is that the Father would glorify him in his own presence with the glory that he had with him before the world existed. And of course, this is where Jesus is right now. So last week we heard a lot about glory. Well, this week we're going to focus on the actual prayer of Christ for his disciples. But before we do that, we need to... Um, we need to kind of step back from the passage and take a look at what's going on here. Whenever you uh, read a passage of Scripture, the first question you should ask is, who is speaking? Um, it, is, it, is it the Lord speaking? Is it Christ speaking? Is it the disciple? It's always the Lord speaking. You know? But who is, the, who is the, the speaker that is recorded? And in this case, of course, it is Jesus Christ, the Son. Let's just uh, look at some qualifications or some description that we have in those first five verses that we looked at last week. First, he's been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life. 
He actually has authority to give eternal life. The reason he has authority to give eternal life is because he accomplished everything the Father wanted him to do. He died that death for us and rose again. Therefore, he was qualified to give eternal life. Second, he has glorified the Father. He has glorified the Father by completing all of the work the Father gave him to do through the incarnation. He became a man. He, in obedience to the Father, he became a man, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And there he bore our sin. And thirdly, he has asked the Father to glorify him to his original position. So that's just some facts that we have from this immediate passage about the Lord Jesus. He has demonstrated to us throughout the Gospel of John that he and the Father are one, that he is the I Am, that there is no, no different ontologically, that there is no different in, difference in essence between the Father and the Son. And yet the, fa- the Son obeys the Father. There is, a, there is a separation. The Word was with God, but there is also a unity. The Word was God, as we saw in John chapter 1. Now let's look at the hearer. To whom is Jesus speaking? Well, he's speaking to God the Father. God the Father has given, and these are some characteristics of God the Father that we see right here in verse 6. We see that he has given the Son people out of the world. The Father has given as a gift to the Son people out of the world. Notice he has not handed the whole world over to Jesus. He's taken people out of the world that hates Jesus, and he's given them to the Son as a gift. Also in verse 8, he has given words to the Son. Um, here, just let me find it. It says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth. So he's given them the words the Father has given to him. This is how the Lord is communicates to us. He communicates to us in words. He communicated to us in the living word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the perfect expression of God's eternal logical plan. So God speaks most clearly in Jesus Christ. But as Jesus came and spoke, he spoke the very words of the Father. He spoke exactly the Father's intention. Uh, but those words, and my point is here, those words were given to the Father, to the Son from the Father. The, the Father is the starting point of this prayer. The Father, uh, the, what the Father has already done, and what the Son has done in conjunction with the Father, is the basis for Him coming to the Father. Uh, and finally, in verse eight, we see also that of the. Uh, God the hearer, that he, is, he has sent the Son into the world. This is uh, what we call the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the Word, was made flesh and came into the world. All right. That's just some basic theology for those two points, but it's always good to stop and consider that it is God speaking to God. This is what is happening here. The Son of God is speaking to the Father. And we learn a lot about the Godhead just from these two observations. 
Now we look at the subject, to whom is this addressed? And this is actually laid out very clearly for us in the passage. The people who are being addressed, let's just look at verse 6. I have manifested your name. In other words, I have made known. I have exegeted your name. I have read out. I have exposed who you are to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That's a very special, unique group of people. Those that the Father has given the Son out of the world. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, and if you know him, you are one of those people. If you merely know about him, and if you merely observe and uh, believe even the basic understandings of the gospel, but if you do not trust in him, if you do not know him, then you are not one of those that the Father has given. Perhaps the Father has not given you, <coughs> you to Him yet. Perhaps today will be that day when you believe and you trust and you come to know through a wonderful gift of grace, you come to know that Jesus is your Savior. Maybe that will happen today. So... The subject is the, pe the people that the Father has given to the Son. And these people are identified in certain ways. Now, in this case, he's talking about his disciples, those that are walking with him at that time in history. First of all, in verse 6, we see that they have kept his word. Just read that. I have manifested your people whom you've given, given me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. God's people... Those that the Father have given to the Son are people who keep God's word. Now, if you think of the disciples, they didn't even know God's word very well yet. Um, they, had, they had some major, um, what do you call them, bloopers in their handling and their understanding of God's truth. They've put their foots in their mouths a few times. They've done some things that are actually sinful. And yet, here is Jesus saying they have kept Father's word. What he has in mind here is not that they have perfectly adhered to every aspect of the law, nor that they have perfectly understood everything that he has taught them. What we do know is that they have stayed with him when the world has gone away. When Jesus drilled down with that hard saying that he is, his body is real food and his blood, or pardon me, his body is real food and his blood is real drink. And he was giving this lesson about what it means to believe. It's, it's as if you're eating and drinking. You're drawing all of your sustenance. Some people said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And they headed for the hills. But there were some who remained. And they said to him, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the only true God. That's what he meant when he said, they have kept my word. They have, they understand who I am. And though they fail and they, although they are weak, though they are very human and imperfect in their understanding, they have kept my word. They remain with me. They remain in me. 
Secondly, in verse 7, we see that they know that everything given to the Son is from the Father. Now, now they know that everything that I have, that you have given me, is from you. They, they understand, and Jesus has been very careful to teach this, that he and the Father are one. That every, all that the Father's, all, everything that the Father has is mine, everything that I have belongs to the Father. I do what I see my Father doing. I speak what I see my Father speaking. So, they know this. They understand this uh, unity, this sharing between the Father and the Son. Also, in verse 8, they have received Jesus' words. They, haven't, they don't just know them. They don't just keep them, but they receive them. They receive them even though they don't understand them. Even though they're hard sayings. They understand this. You have the words of eternal life. We don't get them all yet, but we don't have anywhere else to turn. And if you say you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, we're going to receive those words because we know they're true, because we know you are true. Now, people talk about blind faith, and they, they say that Christians, uh, they just sort of check their brain at the door and and believe whatever their preacher tells them. That's not what this is. There are aspects of faith that are beyond our understanding. There are aspects of faith that until our carnal nature is thoroughly dealt with by the Holy Spirit, we can't even understand. But it is not blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. The gospel makes logical sense. People can understand it. But there's an aspect of faith. There, is, there are things that must be believed. That Jesus is God. That Jesus became flesh. That Jesus died. That Jesus rose again. That Jesus ascended to heaven. These are things that must be believed. Also in verse 8 we see, and that these are all descriptions. And if you're a believer, they all apply to you as well. They, all, they know that the Son came from the Father. They know that it was God's intention, that it was God's plan to deal with sin by sending Jesus into the world. There's a verse in 1 John, and I think also in 2 John, which says, He who acknowledges that Jesus is come in the flesh is from God. But he who does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God, but has the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist, the, the antithesis, the opposing rebellious spirit says that Jesus did not come in the flesh and resists the truth of the gospel. And of course, in the flip side of that, in verse 8, they believe that the Father sent the Son. So, the Son came from the Father, the Father sent to the Son. Really, what he's saying is, these men, these disciples, every part of the gospel that I have given them, they believe and they receive. They're not Christians in the sense that the post-Pentecost people were Christians. They didn't have the permanently indwelling Holy Spirit 
at the point where Jesus is giving this. But he has, they are his because the Father has given them to him. Jesus can, Jesus is, can, even in his flesh, he can still stand outside of time. And he can know that the Father has accomplished the salvation of these 11 men at this point. All right, so we've just established the background, the speaker, the hearer, and the subject. Now we're going to go to the content of the prayer. Jesus um, is going to begin praying for his disciples. And I'm not just going to go verse by verse through this, though we will, Lord willing, cover all of the verses. Um, It's kind of a circular way of speaking and writing that John has, and um, it doesn't lend itself too kindly to uh, just going through in a logical way. So I'm going to do uh, something different. I want to go through the different, I want to go through everything that Jesus does in this passage, all the action words that apply to Jesus, the things that he's doing. And there's three categories that these words break into. There is first those things where the, the sense of the verb is, I have done this. I have given them, I have kept them, I have guarded them. That is a past completed action. If I were an author, I could say, I have written a book. I'm not writing it anymore. It is something that is already accomplished. Okay, so that's one way. And when we look at those verbs, those refer to Christ's incarnational work. The work that he has done in the flesh. The work that he is actually coming to to a closure as he is praying this. He is coming to the point where he is going to be glorified, which we discussed at length last week, means to be lifted up on a cross. So there's a combined humiliation and glorification. Um, But Christ's incarnational work really focuses on the cross. So we'll look first at those, then we'll look at Christ's intercessory work. And... These verbs are expressed in our language, at least, in this way. I, or there's only one verb, really. It says, I am praying. I am praying. This is something that I am doing right now. But it implies that it is not just what I'm doing right at this moment, but it is something that is part of a larger picture. I am praying. I'm in the middle of praying. I have prayed. I am praying, I'm going to keep on praying. So that's Christ's intercessory work. And this is an aspect of Christ's work that is still going on to this day. And then we're going to look at Christ's immediate work. And that is expressed in two verbs that are very, uh, they're very focused in time. Uh, The first is, I speak in the world, verse 13. And the second is, I consecrate myself. Those are two things that are being done right then, in the moment that Jesus is praying and his disciples are observing. It is something that is, um, it is intended for them to observe. They are intended to see that Jesus is doing these things on our behalf. And then after that, we'll, uh, we'll go to conclusion. So let's look at Christ's incarnational work. Let's, the first uh, the first verb, the first um, verb that indicates a past 
completed action is found in verse 6. I have manifested your name. I have made known your name. Um, in, in John chapter 1, it says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of this, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has manifested him or declared him or made him known. So the purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to make known God's name. By God's name, we mean his character, his essence, his fame, his glory, his greatness, his plan. And the word here uh, for manifested, in Greek it's ephanerosa, which uh, literally means I have manifested. It, it is the idea uh, that or the aorist tense can be used in such a way that it uh, encompasses all of Jesus' ministry, including the cross that lies just ahead. I have manifested your name. So um, Jesus, it's, it's as if he's stepping out and looking at this action as already done. I have manifested your name. The culmination is the cross, which he's just spoken of. I have manifested your name. I have made you known. So that's the main purpose of the incarnation is the only begotten of the Father. He has made him known. He has made known. He has revealed to man what the invisible God, what cannot be known of the invisible God. He has made him known. He has come in the flesh. The second aspect, or the second thing that Jesus has already done is he has given them God's words. In verse 8, I have given them your words. I have given them the words that you gave me. Now, there are two places in this text where Jesus talks about giving words. One is in verse 8, and one is in verse 14. I'll read that too right now. Uh, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Do you notice anything different between those two? Those two statements. I've given them your words in verse 8. What does it say in verse 14? I've given them your word. Okay? Those are actually two different words for word in the Greek. When it says, I've given them your words, in verse 8, the word there is remata, which is from the verb rema. I have given you, I have spoken the words that you have spoken to me. It's the idea of um, immediately spoken words. The sayings of Jesus. The verbal pronouncements of Jesus. I have, I have given you these things. I have been obedient to my Father, and I have spoken exactly what my Father wanted me to speak. In 14, the word is logon, which is the, uh, a form of logos. And we know that logos has to do with, uh, well, it's the same word as logic. And it is a word that is used in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Um, which has to do, which, which encompasses the, the plan and the logic and the intelligence and the expression of that, uh, ultimately in Jesus Christ. 
But so not only has he given them these sayings which they can grab onto him, but he has given them, he has given them, um, and he has been to them the perfect expression of God's redemptive plan. He has given them these things. These were things that Jesus came into the world to do, and he, he accomplished these things. They're done. Verse 12 also, it says, now we're skipping a few verses, I realize here. Um, it says, I, I kept them in your name. Let's just read the verses in between so we don't get lost here. Um, I'll start at verse, I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. We'll get to that praying part in a minute. Uh, not for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And we will go right down to 12 verse now. Uh, right now. Uh, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I kept them in your name, which you've given me. You see, Jesus himself, there were several times where people tried to lay hands on him to kill him, to kill him, but it was not his time, so they couldn't. Even in the garden, even the garden, uh, when they, when they, when they, oh, this, we haven't gone to this part in John yet, but when they came to seize him to arrest him, are, are you are you the one we're looking for? Jesus says to them, I am. He gives the name of God and they fall on their backs. They couldn't have touched him. They couldn't have killed him there if they wanted to. Jesus has protected his disciples. He has kept them. He has been their shield of defense as they have walked with him. Even though the disciples despaired and Thomas says, well, let's go to Jerusalem so we can die with him. He has been keeping them. And he has also been keeping them um, from straying from him. And then he says, uh, and continuing in verse 12 here, in his incarnational work, I have guarded them. Now that's similar to keeping. It's probably almost identical to keeping them. But I have guarded them. And he says, and not one of them is law, has been lost. Well, if this next little section weren't in there, we would be scratching our heads saying, wait a minute, didn't Judas betray Jesus? Didn't Judas walk out of the, the supper and go and um, betray Jesus to the Pharisees and to the Jews? Well, let's read on. It says, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now I confess to you, I forgot to write down the scripture. It's in the psalm somewhere where Jesus is quoting, where um, it's talking about he who, he who sat with me has lifted up his heel against me. Um, now, and he's talking about Judas, Judas Iscariot. But Jesus is very careful to, to show us here that he did not fail he did not fail in keeping Judas. It was not his intention to keep him, to guard him. It was his intention that Judas would betray him. And so he did not fail in doing this. 
Um, Judas, uh, this, uh, the character of Judas is summed up actually in uh, a passage that applies to the Antichrist, and that is in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, or the son of perdition. So that is the character. Judas um, has been dead set against the, uh, the kingdom of Christ. He is one of those who... Um, he, he has not truly believed. He has not truly trusted. Um, he has not placed his faith in Jesus. So all these things Jesus has been doing as he's been walking with his disciples, and he has successfully done it. He has manifested his name. He's given them his words. He's, he's kept them in his name. He's guarded them. And finally, and here again, I think we have some of this errorist sense of... In, including the whole picture. Jesus seeing, um, he has sent them out on little missions already, but he's going to send them out again. So he says, I have sent them into the world. And the last thing that Jesus does, the last thing that he does before he ascends into heaven, is he sends his disciples out into the world. He sends them out. So this is all, these I have done, they're all things that Jesus accomplished as he walked in the flesh as a man. In the case of sending them out, he was a resurrected man, um, and yet these are all part of the incarnational work. Everything the Father gave him to do, he did. He was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. Now let's look at his intercessory work in, in going back to verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And he goes into, again, the passage we've just discussed about. Um, well, I'll just read that to you. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. All right, so the verb we're focusing on here is this verb that is expressing something he is doing right now, which is part of an ongoing process. I am praying for them. I am praying for them. Remember, they're observing. They're around here. They're, they're standing around him in the Kidron Valley. And he says, I am praying for them. What does he pray? Well, let's, let's look in verse 11. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. He's getting ready to leave. He prays, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now he's saying, I have kept them, but I'm leaving. Now I'm praying that he will keep them. Part of this is going to be done through the Holy Spirit. But he is entrusting those that the Father has given him. He's saying, I'm leaving, I'm coming back to you. But now I'm praying, I'm entering into this role of intercessor, of high priest, and I'm asking you, Father, to keep the ones that you have given me. Keep them in your name. That's possession. That's 
keeping as, you know, how Jesus, the scripture that we sing in the song, keep me Jesus as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wing. It's that kind of gathering, that keeping. Jesus, in John chapter 10, he talks about the sheepfold. And he says uh, that he's calling people from the sheepfold to come out and to come to him. And he says, I have other people who are not of this fold, and I will call them, and they will come to me when they hear my voice, and there will be one fold, one shepherd. The idea of this fold is a place of protection, a place of keeping. Um, and that place belongs to the shepherd. So keep them in your name. There is a, a great security that the people that the Father has given, the son, given to the Son are kept in the Father's name. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Um, even though it's anachronistic and there's no such thing as a medieval castle in the scripture. If you studied a British history, you knew, know that in the middle of the castle was a reinforced structure called the keep. And whenever there, were, there was an attack and there were marauding enemies coming in and they'd maybe gotten over the drawbridge and over the wall, the people of the, uh, all of the subjects of the kingdom or of the uh, fiefdom or whatever it is, they would run for shelter and they would hide and keep them, hide themselves within that keep. That maybe helps us to understand that the name of the Lord is a place of protection and is a place of keeping. Uh, but why do they run to that castle? Because the Lord owns it. The Lord has prepared it for them. That is his. They are his possession. All right. And then in another uh, part of his intercession here, there's verses in between, as I said before. But if we go down to verse 15, um, it says, uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now there's a different kind of keeping. That's, that is protection, not in the name of the Lord, but protection from the evil one. By the evil one, he very obviously means the devil. We have three main enemies, the world. Jesus speaks much about the world. The flesh, and Jesus speaks much about the flesh. I think the Apostle Paul speaks even more about the flesh, just our old sinful nature, and the devil. And the devil is uh, the one who's described as a roaring lion, who goes around, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. Well, uh, how do we know that this is a devil? 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we are being kept from the one who is, actually has sway and has authority and who, who rules this world. Now doesn't Jesus rule the world? Well, Jesus is allowing Satan to have his, um, have his day right now. But that is, not, that is not the final state of things. And even as Satan rules in the world, Christ rules in his church. He has called his church out of the world. We are a different army altogether. We are a different nation altogether. We are 
as far as he's concerned, we are, uh, we are called, we are predestined, we are justified, we are glorified. We, we are separate from the world altogether. He's called us, and he, it, we, though we remain in the world physically, we are drawn out of it spiritually. So his prayer is that he would keep them from the evil one. Not that, he would, not that they would be taken out of the world. Uh, this world is dangerous. Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Martin Luther understood the power of the devil, and maybe a little too well. He, he threw an inkwell at the devil one time when he got when he was just a little bit upset. Um, another scripture that's relevant here, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in, in me you may have peace. In, in the world will, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the idea is Christ has overcome the world. His disciples are in him. They are being kept in the Father's name. They are... They are um, they are kept then from the evil one. And Christ prays that the Father will actively keep them from the evil one. Isn't that reassuring? That we in this world with devils filled, in this world that is the, at least the temporary domain of Satan, that the Son has prayed to the Father. Well, uh, let's not get too far ahead. Right now we're talking about the disciples that are with him. He's prayed for them that they would be kept from the evil one. Uh, you, can see, you can see Jesus keeping his disciples from the evil one even a little bit earlier in John where, where he says, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked that he sift you like wheat, but I have prayed. I have gone to the Father so that you would. Okay? Um, so there is the... There is this matter of Christ praying that his disciples be kept from the evil one. And there's one other request that is the same, the same kind of verb here. Um, and this is something that the, that the, the son again asked the father in verse 17. And this is a, a really a key verse here, but we'll only spend a little bit of time Time on it right now. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. The instrument of sanctification is the word of God. The initiator of sanctification is God himself. God initiates it. God is the actor in sanctification but he uses his word to do that. And so Jesus is leaving his word with his disciples. He has taught them, they have received it, and he's praying for the Father. His intercessory work includes praying for them, that, they would, that he, the Father would keep them in his name, that the, he would, that the Father would keep them from the evil one, and that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. So you've got the, the Son... As he's with them, he's doing all of these things, and now he's saying, now, Father, 
You take care of them. And he's not mentioning now, but we know that there's another helper that's on the horizon. He's already taught about the Holy Spirit who will come. And he will teach them everything that they need to know. And he will um, guide them into all truth. All right, now let's uh, get to the last section here. And that is Christ's immediate work. I know that I'm, I know that I'm skipping, or I haven't really... Um, hit every theme in here. I haven't really hit on the theme of the motivation that the, they may be one even as we are one. Um, I haven't um, I haven't really dealt with this as, as uh, carefully as I need to it. And if necessary I can come back and, and just do a, a second uh, run at this. But for now I just want to get through the flow of these these verbs and the just what Christ is doing in this passage. Now let's look at Christ's immediate work. So at the end of uh, verse, or in verse 13, we have a transition. But now I am coming to you. Now I'm coming to you. I've been with the disciples. I've been here. I've completed it. Now I'm coming to you. And while I am in the world, before I leave, there are some things that I am going to do right now. And the first is found in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. These things I speak. So there's the verb, I speak. These things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Alright, now, this saying here, these things have I spoken to you, or pardon me, I speak in the world. Remember, he's got an audience, his disciples are watching them. His disciples have heard that the world is against them. His disciples have heard that they are going to be scattered. And he had, they have heard at the end of chapter 16. Be not overcome. But, well, I have to look at it so I don't misquote it. At the end of verse 16, or chapter 16. In the world, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So now he says, I speak in the world, in verse 13, and the reason I speak in the world that is that they, may, they might have joy in themselves. Now we might say, first of all, the immediate thing is he's praying this prayer so that he, they might have his joy fulfilled in themselves. But Jesus has already spoken about joy. And he has already spoken something else in a previous chapter where he says, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that was in John chapter 15, where he talks about himself being the vine and his disciples being the branches and how they receive all of their life through him. And if they remain in him, that they grow much fruit and that he prunes the branches that bear fruit so that they bear more fruit and he chops off at those that don't belong. 
and he speaks those things to them that their joy may be full. The joy comes from union with Jesus. It comes from receiving the nourishment of spiritual life from the Lord Jesus. It comes from remaining in him, abiding in him. And the, this is uh, the, his, his, uh, his immediate task right now. He wants his disciples to remember these teachings. Remember what he has taught them. That the, he is their life. He will sustain them. He asked them, he then, there's one other very direct focus. Uh, thing that he does. The first is, he speaks in the world. The second is in verse 18. In my Bible it says, I consecrate myself. As you have sent me into the world, so I have, so I have sent them in, uh, sorry, verse 17, I think. They are not of the world, verse 16, just as I am not of the world, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. No, that's not what I want either. That's in verse 19. There we go. <clears throat> you might want to correct that in your outline too. It says, I consecrate myself. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Really, consecrate and sanctified is the same word. Sanctified is, uh, from God's perspective, he is sanctifying them, he's setting them apart, but Jesus is consecrating or sanctifying himself. Uh, this is... This is really, really important, this verse. If Christ had not consecrated himself, now we read earlier that the Father sanctified or set him apart, but Christ also set himself apart. Christ also um, set himself apart for his Father's service. Uh, he responded in the affirmative to the eternal decree and the eternal plan that he would come into the world to save sinners. The Lord said to my Lord, this day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you an inheritance, the nations. So he consecrated himself. Had Christ not consecrated himself, had Christ not said and not done this where he said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down freely. Had Christ not given himself for us and for the purpose of, um, of doing the Father's work, then we would have no grounds for our own sanctification. There would be no possibility of us laying down our lives and of being set apart for God, if Jesus had not set himself apart to do the Father's will. The believer's sanctification, our calling and our perfection, our continual growth in godliness, is a result of Christ's consecration. Uh, of course, the sin is taken care of through his sacrifice, but there is the attitude behind that. There is a preparation and the, the giving of himself to the Father. Christ is 
all our righteousness. He is our sanctification. We can't just enlist in God's army by saying, Lord, I want to set myself apart to be yours. You can't do that unless you've been given by the Father to the Son. You can't do that unless you believe and have life through his name. And none of this would have happened had, not, had Christ not laid himself down, had he not set himself apart in conjunction with the Father setting him apart to be the Savior of the world. He is all our righteousness, Christ is. He is our perfect high priest. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is our victorious king. We are sanctified or set apart in his kingdom to participate in his kingdom, in his reign. His death for sin precedes and empowers our death to sin. Christ's death on that cross allows us to die at that cross. Not to pay for our own sin, but that death has been died for us. I as he, in the song, he as I went to the cross. I as he inherited um, his kingdom. I want to read just to just to cap things and to put this all into perspective, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 9. And this is, uh, sort of sums up the work of Christ consecrating himself and making him, himself obedient to death for us as our high priest and as our sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verses 12 to 14. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of goats and calves, not by the blood, means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of, a defi of defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies them for the purification of the flesh. And remember Hebrews was written while the temple was still standing and these rituals were still going on and people believed that they were being purified and the high priest believed that he had to be purified and so on. So how much more, how much greater is this, the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself consecrated himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience, conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the calling, the sanctification, the setting apart has a purpose, and that purpose is service. We are set apart to serve in the kingdom of God. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed, we are cleansed from dead works and from, from sin. And we are set free to serve the living God, to fulfill our calling. The reason we, why we are set apart in the first place. We have died with him, therefore we live with him. I'm just going to read this poem once more as I close that I read for our, uh, for our prayer time. And just, uh, we'll close with this. I sinned, and straightway, post haste, 
Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned. This, tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night. And every word he spoke of God was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose that guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold, my hands, my feet, my side, one day I was made sin for him and died, that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan flew away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love, for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. Lord, I thank you that you speak in our defense, and it is your blood that cries out that you have paid it all, that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law, you have set us free from dead works, you have purified us, so that we can serve you. I thank you, Jesus, that you so willingly served the Father, that you set yourself apart even as you were set apart, and you were obedient, you went to the cross for us. And Lord, as you went to the cross, you simultaneously went into the holiest of holy places and there obtained eternal redemption for us, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with your own blood. Thank you, Jesus, for being a faithful and perfect high priest. And Lord, may we serve with you with joy because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed. God bless.